station, your local station. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And remember, please stay well and safe. At KBOO, we accept many kinds of vehicle donations. We accept fuzzy vans, broken cars, zippy scooters, seaworthy boats, well-worn farm equipment, family-sized SUVs, old jet skis, and more. If your vehicle has a clean title, we can take it as a donation. If your vehicle isn't working, we can work with that, too. Call 877-KBOO-123. That's 877-526-6123. Or go to our website, kboo.fm forward slash vehicle. You are listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM and KBOO.FM online. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. This month's meeting will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland and online through a public video conference. Masks and proof of vaccination are required at this time. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting virtually can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. During the last six weeks, you heard the special programming of our winter fundraising drive. Thank you for supporting Volume 2 of the All Thrills, No Frills campaign. KBOO is on course to exceed our goal of $17,000 as the final checks come through the mail. If you haven't already, get your limited edition Bluegrass Marathon t-shirt. Please go to kboo.fm slash bgshirt. This design was created by a volunteer creator from Music from the True Vine, which airs every Saturday at 9 a.m. Don't wait. Get yours now. Go to kboo.fm slash bgshirt. Again, thank you for supporting your community radio, KBOO FM. Welcome to Coast Range Radio, a production of the Coast Range Association. I'm your host, Michael Gaskill. Today's topic is something I've been interested in learning more about for a while now. Many of you may be familiar with the amazing carbon sequestration potential of forests, and I hope our listeners are familiar with the Coast Range Association's groundbreaking land reform work focusing on private timberlands. But forests aren't the only ecosystem heroes in our fight against climate change. Our oceans and nearshore environments hold enormous potential as well. Blue carbon refers to the carbon stored in coastal and marine ecosystems, and the Nature Conservancy has just released a Blue Carbon State of the Science report, 
focusing on Oregon, and I'm excited to be joined by one of the authors of that report, Joanna Lyle. Joanna is an Oregon Sea Grant Fellow working with the Nature Conservancy to explore carbon sequestration potential in Oregon's coastal and nearshore environments. And we're also joined by Sylvia Troost from Pew Charitable Trust. Sylvia's work focuses on incorporating blue carbon into Pew's marine-based climate action plans. Before we get started, I want to encourage you to share this podcast with your friends, leave us a rating and review on your podcast app, etc. I also love hearing feedback and guest ideas, anything else. My email is michael at coastrange.org, and our website is simply coastrange.org. Okay, on with the show. Well, Joanna Lyle and Sylvia Troost, welcome to Coast Range Radio. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So let's start with the with the ground level basics here. You know, first off, um, I want to know how you all define blue carbon and, and why it's important. And then I'm hoping we can also kind of ground us briefly in what that looks like on the ground. You know, what are we talking about when we talk about blue carbon in Oregon? And what should our listeners be picturing throughout this conversation? Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, thanks, Michael. So. As you mentioned at the outset, blue carbon refers to carbon dioxide that is absorbed from the atmosphere and stored in coastal and ocean ecosystems. And it's called blue because of the watery nature of this carbon storage. Um, so when we think about Oregon's, Oregon's estuaries and coastal areas can be considered blue carbon hotspots. So eelgrass beds, tidal marshes, forest to tidal wetlands, which are all found in these areas, are really great at efficiently capturing and storing carbon. And if these areas are left undisturbed, they can keep storing this carbon for hundreds of years, if not millennia. So, I mean, why is blue carbon important? Well, coastal blue carbon is important because even though they occupy a pretty relatively small footprint on the planet, you know, they are incredibly efficient at capturing and storing carbon. And they can bury carbon at rates on par or even exceeding tropical rainforests. So this means that they can help reduce climate change by keeping carbon out of the atmosphere and locked away in the ground. Um, but this is a double-edged sword because if these ecosystems are degraded or disturbed, they can release this carbon back into the atmosphere, actually contributing to climate change. So that's why it's super important to protect these places and restore where we can. Right. And that's, I'm really glad that you brought that up right at the top. If we take care of them, then they'll help take care of us and, and vice versa. So briefly, you know, what does that look like on the ground in Oregon? Like what, um, I live near, for instance, I live sort of near Newport, Oregon. Um, what should I be picturing in terms of the, you know, the types of ecosystems or, or places? Um, and if Newport doesn't spring anything to mind, then anywhere else, you know, just, just give us a little picture to kind of work off of. I can take that if you want. Yeah. Um, these habitats range from shrubby tidal wetlands, uh, grassy salt marshes that are on the shorelines, um, anywhere within the estuary within our bays, a lot of those habitats contribute to blue carbon. Mm. And then you can also think about um, in the rocky nearshore past the tide pools where you see kelp forests 
and bull kelp. Um, those are also hugely productive ecosystems that we have in Oregon. And, and they're some of the most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet. Okay, great. Thanks. That, that helps me kind of understand and, and, and picture in my mind where we're talking about. So let's jump into that state of the science report that the Nature Conservancy just released. Um, so Joanna, I'm hoping that as one of the authors, you could give us kind of a, a brief overview, you know, start with where can people find the report? What's the, you know, target audience? And what was the goal of this project? Sure. Well, the easiest way to access the report is online at Oregon Sea Grant's website on the publications page. So to give some background, TNC realized there are big studies and projections of what will happen with climate change and the role that blue carbon habitats can play. But we really didn't have information at our local or regional scale in the Pacific Northwest or Oregon. So we realized this is a key need so we can understand what blue carbon means for us here in Oregon. To prepare the report, we reviewed the literature and the current science on how tidal wetlands, eelgrass, and other habitats sequester carbon here in the Pacific Northwest, so very specific to our local ecosystems. Hmm. And once we identified these studies, we read them and synthesized them into one big science report for uh, coastal practitioners and scientists and anyone really interested um, in how blue carbon functions. We tried to put it all in one place. So the report is titled Oregon's Blue Carbon Ecosystems, the State of the Science. And you can find that by Googling that with Oregon Sea Grant or with the Nature Conservancy. Well, let's dig in deeper to the report itself and to the findings. Could one of you talk about uh, the different ecosystem types and species that you covered? Sure. Um, so in the report, we cover habitats in Oregon's estuaries and bays like shrub and spruce dominated forested tidal wetlands that Sylvia mentioned, um, also emergent salt marshes near the shoreline, and submerged eelgrass meadows. But in the report, we're also inclusive of habitats like kelp forests that are often left out of the blue carbon conversation. And we also address potential climate contributions of not habitats, but things like ocean mammals like whales and otters, as well as seaweed farming and shellfish aquaculture. Yeah, you covered a lot of ground. Um, so I'm wondering what some of the key findings of the report are. So first of all, what do we what do we know and what requires more study? And uh, and yeah, just talk through some of the key findings. Sure. So because of a lot of the work done by regional partners through existing networks like the Blue Carbon Working Group, um, that that's the Pacific Northwest Blue Carbon Working Group. Oregon is really poised to lead the way on blue carbon in the U.S., like Sylvia mentioned. Tidal wetlands in particular have an amazing base of knowledge here in Oregon. Tidal wetlands are really a focus because they're, they don't really move a lot. They're located in, in the estuaries and bays, so they don't experience a whole lot of disturbance. Um, and sediment from upstream settles out in in the estuary and these marshes are able to to build up over time they actually um what's called a crete vertically so sediment um gets laid down and then the plants grow on top of the older layers um, and that really locks all of that carbon and plant material in place and stores it over a really long period of time so these 
these habitats um, have a, a wonderful mechanism of locking carbon in place. And as you move up in elevation from, from the water, from the shoreline, up into our tidal wetland forests, really just an amazing amount of carbon is locked in the soils there. What um, of the areas you studied, where are our greatest potential ecosystems or species, et cetera, um, for carbon sequestration? Our bays and our estuaries contain the habitats with the best known carbon potential, blue carbon potential that is. Our tidal wetlands are incredible at producing carbon and building those soils that lock it in place, as I mentioned. Our tidal forests are made up of Sitka spruce, um, and they have carbon stocks on the same level as tropical mangroves and Oregon's old growth forests. Um, so that's a lot of carbon, but unfortunately, we've lost almost all of it. We've lost about 95% of its historic extent on the coast. Um, on the brighter side, tidal scrub shrub habitats, these are areas made up of thickets of willows and small trees, are being recognized as carbon sequestration rock stars. Mm. And they're relatively easy to restore, whereas restoring um, the spruce swamps, these um, Sika spruce wetlands, it takes a really long time to grow those spruce trees. Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. Can I hold on that for just a second? Because, you know, when I walk through an old growth forest, as, as rare as they are, you can just see the carbon everywhere. You know, it's, it's in these massive trees. It's in the duff of the ground. And it's just so obvious, right? But when I, you know, walk around in, in what I think I'm, I'm picturing when you're talking about the scrub shrub habitat, it's not as clear to me how that um, is on par, right, with those old growth forests. So where where is that? You know, like how, how does that work? Yeah, so the total amount of carbon when you're thinking of scrub shrub thicket in the wetlands, the tidal wetlands versus the old growth forests, that's not what I'm talking about. There's a lot more carbon standing in old growth forests than in these tidal wetlands. But scrub shrub habitats are able to build carbon in their stalks much faster at a much faster rate than other habitats. And when I think of these forested tidal wetlands, as they're called, which include these shrubby wetlands and the forested Sitka spruce dominated wetlands, you can really see, see the buildup of carbon through time. So at one point in time, centuries, centuries and centuries ago, those spruce swamps may have once been shrub wetlands. Um, over time, as those shrubs grow and fall down and the soil builds up, it creates the foundation for spruce trees, for example, to take root and for them to grow up. So when you're comparing spruce tidal wetlands to old growth forests, the biggest difference is in the soil. There's a lot more soil there and the salinity there holds on to carbon it doesn't release it like you would see in um, an upland forest where there's a lot of decom decomposition going on that really re-releases carbon to the atmosphere. That's a great answer. Thanks so much. That really clarifies things for me. Sylvia, did you have anything to add? Or Joanna, did you want to talk about any other um, ecosystem types? With respect to um, the forested tidal wetlands at, um, in Oregon, there is a lot of interest 
in restoring these these habitats. Um, and as Joanna noted earlier, that in addition to being carbon powerhouses, they're also very important for for fish like salmon, wildlife. So it's kind of a no regret measure, really, <laughs> it, you know, to find areas where it is possible to restore and then and then do that restoration. So you get multiple bang for your buck in addition to carbon. I really appreciate you making that point because even though, you know, um, ecosystem services and 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 biodiversity um, concerns aren't really what we're specifically focusing on today it is really important to be pointing out that like all of this works together you know when we take care of the habitat we get so many of these co-benefits so so it really is a win-win situation so thanks for pointing that out yeah joanna if you had any anything to add or speak more about in terms of um places with the greatest carbon sequestration potential well one area that really needs a lot more focus um but the potential is there, is in our coastal kelp forests. So I want to mention there's an ongoing scientific discourse on how much kelp and seaweeds contribute to carbon sequestration, because it's really hard to measure where that carbon ends up. Because you know the ocean is a the ocean is a dynamic place, and waves you know crash through, tear off pieces of kelp, and and it's hard to track where that ultimately ends up. But kelp and seaweeds absorb a lot of carbon during their growth, and then they detach, like I mentioned. They can float out to sea and sink into the deep ocean. The question really is, how much carbon makes it to permanent storage, and how can we manage and enhance this? But one really amazing tidbit is that up to a third of the carbon that we can measure within eelgrass meadows comes from kelp. Large pieces of kelp get shredded up into tiny particles that float and settle out into the estuary. And a third is a huge amount. And that's just from canopy forming species like bull kelp. So I'm just excited for kelp and seaweed to get the attention it deserves in the carbon realm. Yeah, thank you for uh, touching on kelp. And and that goes back to the point we were just talking about with code benefits, you know, because obviously kelp serves so many other really critical you know, purposes uh, for our ecosystems. And so it is really important that we're focusing on those, especially since, you know, in Oregon, California, we're having such devastation of these kelp forests. Yeah, and I'll just add really quickly um, on on eelgrass beds and kelp that studies indicate that these habitats can provide um, localized improvements um, for ocean acidification. So there's that added benefit as well from that climate-related threat. Oh, I had no idea. Thanks for that. Um, so I wanted to move on to the to the recommendations in the report, if that's okay. Yeah, I'm wondering what your key recommendations are, and then maybe we could talk to some of the barriers around that um, and opportunities. Sure. Our recommendations really focus broadly on improving and protecting the ability of the ocean and our estuaries to sequester and store carbon long term to help fight climate change. Um, that looks like preserving existing estuary and nearshore habitats um, because it's so important to maintain those carbon storage functions along with the co-benefits to biodiversity and coastal communities. Um, we also found that restoration projects within estuaries that knock down old unused dikes and return tidal flow to trapped wetlands 
immediately reduces potent methane emissions, which are, it's a, methane is a greenhouse gas that is 25 times stronger than carbon dioxide. Um, and when it comes to restoration, we need these projects sooner rather than later. Carbon sequestration rates take a little while to get going, and as plants grow, they become more efficient at trapping carbon. So we expect to see a lag time between the time of restoration and when the highest carbon benefit will occur. So every year counts, and nature will do its best work if we give it the time to do so. Very well put. I'm wondering if there are any projects um, that you're actively engaged in or or looking at or what the barriers are. You know, this all seems like such a no-brainer. So why isn't this already happening everywhere? What are some of the hurdles that we need to overcome to get this going quick? Yeah, so Oregon has really some of the best data in our tidal wetlands. Um, but the difficult part is the implementation. And um, a lot of organizations, a lot of practitioners on the coast just don't have the time or resources or capacity to do the measurements needed to incorporate blue carbon into their practices. I mean, a lot of the restorations that are happening on the coast have carbon benefits, but we just don't know how much. Okay. Do either one of you have any standout examples of restoration opportunities that, that folks we can point people towards or or maybe uh, even restoration success stories? Well, there are a lot of restoration projects on the Oregon coast that have done amazing work. Um, but there currently is there currently aren't any um, active blue carbon projects because of the newness of of the field and it's 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 been studied really well on the science side and it's a little bit more difficult on the implementation side um i mean i want to emphasize that there is amazing work that is currently ongoing in the region from research collaborations within um and these coastal organizations i would look to the pacific northwest blue carbon working group again for a list of current projects um our National Estuarine Research Reserve here at South Slough is also doing great um, research on blue carbon. And TNC is is continuing to invest our time and our staff to make progress for blue carbon. We're currently supporting work to map blue carbon in estuaries across the coast. Um, so that's that's where we're working right now is identification of, of areas to work to prioritize. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add to that, too, um, that the Pacific Northwest Blue Carbon Working Group is working on what they're calling a restoration opportunity map, um, starting with the Coos Bay, and that work should be um, should be publicly available probably within the next six months, <laughs> um, and that will actually, um, that will be kind of an interactive web-based tool where people can actually go in and click and see where there are areas suitable for restoration and what the carbon impacts would be. So that's kind of an example of, of the research and the mapping um, that Joanna mentioned. And I would just add kind of taking the bigger picture, um, you know, Joanna mentioned resources. So it's really, you know, getting the resources and the capacity and, and and really the will, you know, and support from the community to do this sort of um, restoration projects. And also don't forget about protection as well, too. We got to keep these, 
keep these blue carbon areas. And Oregon has pretty robust um, protections in place, but, you know, always have to be mindful of that. So the state of Oregon, you know, along with other states, is looking more broadly at how they can tap into the power of nature to help fight climate change. Um, so these, these are called natural climate solutions. And in Oregon, it's you may have heard kind of the natural working land strategy that the Oregon Global Warming Commission is working on. And so even though we all know the number one action we need to do is reduce and eventually eliminate the use of fossil fuels, this recognizes that nature can play an important part in helping slow ch climate change. So there's kind of active efforts at, at kind of the policy level, both state and federally, to really look at how we can ramp up these natural climate solutions. And so, so this great report that TNC just um, published can really help provide that information for policymakers and land managers who are interested in how kind of improved land management, restoration can really aid an effort to slow climate change. As well, and, you know, in addition to all the other benefits that that would accrue from protection and restoration, such as supporting fisheries and protecting communities from flooding and whatnot. So it's kind of that, that top-down level support um, that can provide the funding and the management attention um, that can then enable these bottom-up restoration projects, protection projects um, to, to happen. Yeah, well said. Thanks for thanks for including that. And I'll just say we actually just did an episode um, kind of previewing the current Oregon 2023 legislative session, and there's a big natural climate solutions bill that is kind of the 2.0 version of the natural and working lands bill that you mentioned. Uh, Coast Range Association is working on that bill, and if folks want to learn more, check out that episode on, on our website or or in your podcast app, and we'll also have more information about that coming soon. Since you were kind of talking big picture just now, Sylvia, I wonder if uh, you could talk a little bit about that big picture, because I know that you're not, you're focused larger than just Oregon. So, so could you talk kind of about your work a little bit? Sure. Um, so we started this work at Pew um, looking for ways where we can really incentivize and improve how our coastal resources are managed to improve protections, to really jumpstart restoration because, you know, we are kind of operating at a position of loss, as Joanna mentioned. It, what is um, true for Oregon is true around the country that we've lost a lot of these um, these coastal wetlands, these coastal blue carbon habitats. And now is an unprecedented time really for um, really supercharging our efforts to protect these areas, to protect them from sea level rise, which is which is a big threat um, as well, and where possible to restore, um, we have unprecedented investments from the federal level um, where they're really interested in what they call nature-based solutions, um, in, including those kind of efforts that help communities and, and states um, slow climate change, but also adapt to climate change. And these sort of coastal protection and restoration efforts can do both. And then our work at the state level is as states undertake these national working land strategies, um, as they're looking at that as a pathway to help achieve climate goals, to really elevate the role that coastal 
landscape can play in these strategies. Because as you noted at the outset, the focus understandably within these kind of nature-based strategies for climate has really been kind of on better understood systems and, and quite frankly, much more extensive like forests. Um, but as Joanna noted, the state of knowledge around blue carbon has really been growing and, and now is a great time to ensure that these um, landscapes or coastal nearshore landscapes are also included in efforts at the state level to, um, to tap into the power of these habitats to help mitigate climate change. Thanks for that. As we start to wrap up here, I'm wondering if there's anything I've missed or anything either of you would like to make sure gets included in the conversation today. I think we've covered everything I wanted to discuss. Yeah, this has been a, a great conversation. I guess I would just add in the TNC report kind of gets to this when they talk about things like um, oyster beds and whatnot is that, you know, these are all landscapes that, you know, and a healthy forest um, means, you know, healthier downstream coastal, you know, landscapes. So, um, so I know we, you know, from a measuring perspective, you know, we like to look at separate landscape types and things like that when we're thinking about carbon, but from a management perspective, really looking holistically and how like healthy watersheds can help support um, our coastal wetlands. So I just wanted to, to flag that as well as we're thinking about how to, how to apply blue carbon in practice. Yeah, that's a great addition. Thinking about the connectivity between our uplands, our estuaries, and our ocean is really important. So I'm thinking more about land-sea connections and the way that we implement that in our work. Yeah, very well put from both of you. Thanks for making sure that we, we include that holistic perspective. Well, one more time, I'd love to plug um, where people can find the report and where people can learn more about you all's work. The report is titled Oregon's Blue Carbon Ecosystems, the State of the Science, and you can find it online at Oregon Sea Grant's website under the Publications tab. Great. Okay. Is there any other work that you're engaged in that you want folks to know about, Joanna? Folks should keep an eye out for additional blue carbon products coming out in the next few months. All right. Thanks. Uh, Sylvia? Yeah, if, if people are interested in learning more about Pew's um, blue carbon work, you can check out our webpage, pewtrust.org, um, and with blue carbon in the search engine, and it'll come up. We have a lot of great resources, including um, uh, resources related to Oregon, as well as some of the other states we're working in. And we also have um, what we call our blue carbon network, which is a forum for states and, and you know managers and others interested in blue carbon um, to get more information about um, emerging science, participate in webinars um, and whatnot. So folks can check out Pew uh, Blue Carbon Network if they're interested in signing up. Well, Sylvia Troost and Joanna Lyle, thank you so much for joining us on Coast Range Radio. Thank you so much for your hard work and, and all the best in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's our show. We're going to have links to the State of the Science Report and other resources in the show description of this episode of our podcast and at our website, coastrange.org. Speaking of which, our entire archive is available, you guessed it, wherever you get your podcasts or at coastrange.org. And you can email me anytime, michael at coastrange.org. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks.
Radio. This is Clipping. You're listening to KBOO. Welcome to Coast Range Radio, a production of the Coast Range Association. I'm your host, Michael Gaskill. We talk a lot on this show and in the Coast Range Association work more broadly about the invasive plague of global capital in our timberlands and just about all other aspects of our world. And one of the key front lines in the fight against that invasion is mega factory farms. And the Pacific Northwest is a huge land grab target for big ag. I want to say right up top, this episode is not about whether you should eat meat or not. No matter where you stand on that, factory farms are an indefensible way to raise animals for all the reasons we'll get into today and many more. Like most issues, when we make it about personal choice and personal responsibility, we let the true culprits off the hook, in this case the agribusiness giants who control our food systems. Real progress requires systemic change. And that's why I'm so excited to speak with three representatives of the Stand Up to Factory Farms Coalition about their campaigns to change policy in Oregon and what we can all do to help. If you're inspired to get involved in this fight, their website is StandUpToFactoryFarms.org. Before we get to the interview, please consider sharing this episode with a friend, leaving us a review on your podcast app, subscribing if you haven't already, all these things that really, truly help us reach a broader audience. Your support in any and every form truly helps. Thank you. Okay, on with the show. Could you all say your name, pronoun, and your job title? I'm Tara Heinzen. I use she, her pronouns. I am Food and Water Watch's legal director. This is Amy Van Son, they, them, theirs, and I'm the Center for Food Safety's senior attorney. This is Alice Morrison, she, her, and I am Friends of Family Farmers co-executive director for policy and development. Great. Well, Tara, Amy, and Alice, thank you so much for joining us on Coast Range Radio today. I am so excited to talk with you all about your work and about this super important subject that really doesn't get enough coverage. I'm hoping that we can kind of start with the big picture. You know, what what are we talking about when we talk about factory farms? And why should listeners care about this issue right now? Sure, I can jump in there. Uh... When we're talking about factory farms, we're talking about livestock operations that are concentrated and confined. So that means that the animals that live in these operations stay inside their entire lives. They're not outside on pasture. And there's a vast accumulation of their waste. And many of these operations that we're talking about use what's called the lagoon and spray system, which sounds nicer than it is, but means you're taking a liquefied you know, many millions of gallons of waste and then spraying it onto uh, crop fields. And so I'm sure we'll get into later all the problems that are caused here, but we're not talking about, you know, your small uh, independent family farms. We're talking about much larger operations, many with uh, hundreds and thousands of animals uh, crowded in together. Great. And and why why this issue? Why now? You know, what what is... Um... You know, why, why should people be paying attention to this right now? Well, Oregon is unfortunately a magnet 
for an expansion of this industry. We've long had dairy and other uh, livestock here in, in much smaller operations, but lately what we've seen is an influx of much larger what we call mega dairy or mega chicken operations that house the tens to hundreds of thousands of animals at once. And the problem here is that this causes a concentration and burden of water and air pollution in the communities that are forced to have the, to, to house these operations. Um, not only that, this is a huge and unregulated source of greenhouse gases. So right at a time when we need to be doing everything we can to mitigate climate change uh, and the climate crisis that we're seeing here at, at home and everywhere, uh, methane is, is a huge uh, uh, gas that is released by these operations and it is totally unchecked. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm wondering, actually, I would love to, and and we're going to dig kind of deeper into the specific issues, but I was wondering if someone can just kind of give me that, that bullet point, you know, list of some of the top issues that are created if we allow factory farming to expand in Oregon, and then we can kind of dig deeper into each of those topics. Yeah, absolutely. I'll jump in here once again. Because uh, I just love talking about this issue. But so, like I said, factory farms house thousands of animals and so therefore generate massive amounts of waste, the same amount as small or even large cities. They also emit toxic air pollutants, including respiratory irritants like ammonia that cause all sorts of health harms and greenhouse gases like methane. They also leach contaminants into groundwater and surface water and threaten our drinking water supplies, especially out in eastern Oregon where there's already dangerous levels of nitrates in people's drinking water. And finally, they drain our critical freshwater supplies. They can use as much water as a small city or even a mid-sized city, and especially in places where there's already drought. And Alice, you can tell us about the impacts to, to small farm. Uh, thanks for queuing that up, Amy. And in terms of the impact that these factory farms have on the rest of the food and farming system, they contribute to this pernicious big get big or get out mentality in agriculture in our country. And the more that we prioritize these facilities over small and mid-sized independent farms, and I do want to say that by allowing these farms to proliferate, we are prioritizing them over small and mid-sized family-owned farms because they create a system in which it's impossible for those smaller players to thrive. When this becomes the norm in agriculture, um, one thing that happens is that processing infrastructure skews toward these gigantic facilities because there is a financial disincentive to working with a smaller producer when you could contract with one of these large facilities and have them bring thousands of animals through the door every week. There's also the concerns with land use. So they're often zone, uh, located on exclusive farm use or EFU zone land because then they can take advantage of the right to farm laws here in Oregon, which were, are a really powerful tool to allow farmers to do what they need to do, but were never designed with these types of facilities in mind. They're not built to apply to an industrial facility of, these, of this scale. And uh, the last thing that I wanted to mention is that these facilities are not good for our rural economies. There are studies coming out of OSU that were conducted in Central Oregon that show that these types of facilities, um, when compared to diversified local market farms who are selling their products directly into the, com the communities where they live, 
Um, these factory farms create less jobs per million dollars of revenue. They have a lower um, amount of money staying in the community and they create less economic activity in those communities than these other farms that they are harming in the process. So um, they also contribute to land price um, gouging that we see across the state. We're in a farmland access crisis because of um, corporate speculation on our farmland and viewing it as an investment for this type of farming rather than an essential component of food production. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought in that perspective. And, you know, too often I think we just default to, well, that's just the way things are and it's the free market at work or whatever. And it's not. These are policy decisions to incentivize and disincentivize certain actors, right? And so it is not an act of nature or a foregone conclusion that we will have never-ending corporate consolidation of our food systems. This is a policy choice made by, uh, you know, largely the agribusiness giants that, you, like you say, are, are coming in and trying to gobble up more and more land in the Northwest. And I know that we're going to kind of touch on you all's solution to that, um, especially with and, SB 85. Um, and just to address that, I'm so sorry, but I want to just point out that the opposition to this bill also bemoans the get bigger, get out mentality of farming. And we're both saying the same thing, that we don't want to go down this road but like you're saying these are policy choices that we're making and there there are solutions that don't involve laying down to that get bigger get out mentality well i wanted to ask more about you all's coalition but maybe this is a great lead-in to just kind of talk about some of the campaigns that you all are working on and and what you all's priorities are and then we can circle back to some of my other questions I was hoping to touch briefly on environmental justice issues because Amy really spoke well to the many pollution impacts of this industry, but you know we also talked about the fact that these are policy choices and a lot of those policy choices play out in what I refer to as agricultural exceptionalism, loopholes and exemptions that exist throughout our environmental laws and other protections that let big ag off the hook. And we see that with factory farming and underregulated or wholly unregulated pollution from these operations. It's an environmental justice nightmare. And the concentration issues that Alice spoke to also concentrates these pollution problems and these facilities in certain communities and certain environments. Often these are communities that lack the resources and political power to hold this industry accountable. And so really filling some of those gaps and loopholes and getting rid of that agricultural exceptionalism, treating factory farms as the industrial scale polluters that they are, is key to truly solving this problem. Thank you so much for, for bringing in that point. Do you want to talk more about some of you all's solutions, the legislation that you all are back in, um, and, and just run us through that real quick, and then I've got some, some follow-ups? Sure, so Stand Up to Factory Farms has been advocating for a mega dairy moratorium for several years, and this year we are working for an all factory farm moratorium. We're currently supporting SB 85-1, which would enact a several year and eight year long moratorium on all large tier two factory farms in the state. 
And that's a top priority because we're seeing that huge mega dairies and enormous chicken factories are being proposed in multiple parts of the state right now. So it's urgent this session for the legislature to act and to act in a way that protects all Oregon communities from the biggest factory farms trying to move into the state. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about the key provisions of the bill? So it's actually a really simple bill, and it just directs the state to not issue the necessary water pollution permits for operations that are above a certain size. And as as Tara said, that's tier two large, uh, which is 2,500 mature dairy cows or 350,000 broiler chickens, um, just to be as an example. And of course, the bill lists out all of the all of the relevant sizes there. And it also directs uh, the state to make a report to the legislature halfway through uh, this eight-year period of time. And the reason why we need this, of course, is to get to give some time for the legislature and for the state that's the Department of Ag and, and Environmental Quality to enact new laws and to enforce the laws we already have to protect our climate, air, our water, our rural community health, the economic viability of our farmers, and the humane treatment of farmed animals um, all together. You know, our coalition cares about so many different aspects that are touched and are harmed by these huge operations. Uh, but really, the bill is, is quite simple as written. Yeah, and and just to make sure that we're putting a really fine point on it, how would this impact small farms and small farmers versus these large um, large corporate farms? I'm happy to address that. Please, um, yeah, thanks. So for background, Friends of Family Farmers uh, has was founded in 2005 by farmers and rural residents who didn't feel adequately represented by commodity agriculture and, and traditional agriculture groups across the state. And since then, we've grown to represent over 1,600 farmers um, across Oregon, including those in the communities impacted by the factory farms that we've talked about today. And we do have members within our, our coalition of membership um, of Friends of Family Farmers who hold small and medium CAFO permits by ODA's CAFO program. So first and foremost, we want to make sure that we're clear that we are not, this, this bill has no provisions that would impact any person or farm who does not hold or is not seeking a large tier two CAFO permit. It also does not shut down any of those farms. It only stops the issuance of new per permits or renewal of permits that are rising to that level. So if you have an existing permit and you're trying to renew that permit with an addition to rise to that large tier two level, you would not be able to rise to that new level. Um, so in brief, for day-to-day -day operations, this will not impact anyone who doesn't fall into that category. And I think that the biggest impact that this will have on these small and mid-sized farms that I represent is that they will be able to have some peace of mind that their land and water resources are not going to be in jeopardy from the pollutants that we've talked about. Um, of course, farmers are also rural residents. They live in these communities where some of these facilities are located. And uh, knowing that, for example, their children's school is not going to be 
in an area where ammonia from these chicken barns, um, this scale of chicken barn does produce quite a bit of ammonia as a gas emission. Another piece of the puzzle is that there is a provision called the stock watering exemption, which allows livestock operations, most all of the livestock operations that I represent use the stock watering exemption to some extent because it was developed a century ago in order to make sure that folks were able to water their animals. Um, this, like the right to farm law, was never intended to apply to facilities of this scale, but it allows facilities like the ones that we're discussing here to take as much water as they need for the vast amounts of animals that they're raising in this confined space without regard to other folks who have water rights, um, without regard to the quality of the watershed or any other concerns um, that the watershed may have. So we are confident that this will create more resources for small farmers and protect the communities that they live, work, and feed. I'm wondering if we could take a minute here and and ground this discussion into a real live controversy around uh, factory farm expansion here in Oregon and especially in Western Oregon. So right now uh, there are a number of large factory chicken operations being proposed in, I believe, Lynn County. And I know that driving around in Lynn County, local opposition is fierce to those. So I'm wondering if somebody could talk about those specific proposals, the issues there, and how SB 851 would would address that proposal or would impact those proposals. Yeah, so this is a relatively new expansion in Oregon because we are a state that has had dairy for a long time, but not so much the huge chicken, broiler chicken operations as we've seen in other states, other parts of the country. So there are three operations that are proposed, one that has already been permitted, JS Ranch, uh, that would raise collectively over 10 million chickens, uh, broiler chickens a year. So that's uh, 3.5 and then two 4.5 million uh, operations and they're right next to other farms where people live one of the big problems is that their plan for all that waste is that it will just be exported to to apparently farmers in the area who will use it as fertilizer but they will you know there's nothing to account for how it then gets spread on land you know how much is being used where it's whether it's getting spread near waterways and this is an area of the state that you know, is a pretty dense farming area um, and community and has some, some very uh, pristine waterways. And the JS Ranch facility is right on the banks of the North Santiam River, where a number of endangered uh, species and salmon um, live and need that uh, pristine area that is threatened by this operation. Yeah, and and so thank you for, for you know, providing that overview. Is, would the passage of SB 851 uh, impact those proposed operations? Yes, as to the two that have not been permitted yet. And the one that has been permitted is actually already a subject of a court challenge uh, by the one of the neighbors and several organizations, um, including Friends of Family Farmers and Willamette Riverkeeper. And so because of the state's failure to you know, consider how this would impact the groundwater and that river, um, in, in permitting that operation. But it would put a pause on the other ones that are proposed. So 
and that's really important because you know one of them is right right upwind from a school and a community center and so the this legislation would absolutely um, pre- prevent further harm there great yeah and you know I ask in particular about that operation partly because I live uh, in the coast range not too far away from Lynn County and I just think a lot of folks are not as familiar with with what's going on there and would be really disturbed once they start finding out some of those details so how can folks get involved here how can folks help out how can folks help pass this legislation or learn more about the work of stand up to factory farms sure first i'll just say that um, how to help out with this bill is a little tricky for the timing of this because we are now looking at a work session for the bill on the 27th and we don't know exactly how that's going to go there are some amendments being floated around so it'll be a little tough to give a relevant uh how to get involved pitch for the bill to your audience just so you know right these Um, things are you know the legislative session is moving fast and and uh things could be vastly different in one week's time um so maybe broader broader how do people just get engaged helping out on this issue in general regardless of where this specific legislation stands when folks are hearing this episode Anyone who wants to know more about the Stand Up to Factory Farms Coalition, the work we're doing and opportunities to get involved should check out our website and follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and on Facebook. And so there are many opportunities to get involved. I think someone else might have the specific handles handy. Um, But we also regularly communicate with folks who've signed up to stay in the loop on opportunities to take action. We regularly send out updates on our legislative campaign to let people know how they can contact their legislators, what message to bring to their senators and representatives. And we'll continue to do that as the session moves on and as our bill develops. And we want to bring as many people into this campaign as possible from all over the state to make it clear to all of our representatives that this is an urgent issue, this legislative session, and we need a moratorium on all factory farms now. And I will add to that that you can find our website at standuptofactoryfarms.org. And you can also, if you want to get um, some text updates, you can text Oregon, our state, <laughs> to 23321. And that's Oregon to 23321. And get some live updates there about how you can connect with your legislators legislators to tell them uh, that we should have this full moratorium now. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't a, an evergreen episode. Uh, like I mentioned, things could look uh, different by the time this airs. We're recording this uh, uh, the week before that hearing that you're that you're talking about. But with that with that caveat, where do things stand with the bill right now? So right now, uh, there is a third public hearing scheduled for the 22nd, which is uh, at 8 a.m., and that will uh, give people yet another chance to, you know, speak up and, and say why they want or do not want this legislation. And um, there's a possible work session, which is the uh, the vote basically by the committee. This is the Senate Natural Resources Committee, scheduled for the week after on the 27th at 8 a.m. Um, so we're hoping that the committee will vote uh, to pass uh, the SB 85-1 amendment, um, 
which is the full factory farm moratorium includes beef, cattle, chicken, we'll protect Willamette Valley, we'll protect uh, Umatilla and Moro counties and the coast everywhere. Um, and they'll vote that out. And then of course it would head, it has a small budget attachment to it, very, very small. And so it would head to Ways and Means after that, which is our budget committee, the state. Okay, well, thanks for that update. Alice, did you have something to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add that although things do move quickly, it's never a bad time to let your legislator know that this is a, an important issue for you personally or how this would impact you. So I would invite anyone who is interested in saying more about this to their representative or senator to head on over to OregonLegislature.gov, find out who your senator or representative is, and you, as a constituent, you are always welcome to give them a call or drop them an email, and we have so many talking points and ideas of how to frame this issue. If you want some help with crafting that statement um, on our website and through our communications, but they really do want to hear from you. Uh, we invite you to reach out on this issue and we would love to help you uh, say everything you want to say about factory farms. Wonderful. And I would just echo that that sentiment that it's never a bad time to reach out to your to your representative. We are starting to run short on time, so I want to know if there's anything we've missed. And I know there's a lot of ground that we didn't cover today. So again, I would just plug StandUpToFactoryFarms.org, where you all have a wealth of information that people can learn more about. But uh, with that in mind, is there anything we missed before we wrap up today? I was just going to speak a little bit to some of our campaign work over the years and why that kind of underscores the need for a moratorium. That, Please. That sounds good. So one of the reasons that we need a moratorium on factory farms in Oregon is that we've seen through years of campaign work that state regulators have failed to adequately protect Oregonians and family farmers from the harms of the factory farm industry. As a coalition, three years ago, we sent an emergency petition to the US Environmental Protection Agency to take action to address persistent nitrate contamination in the lower Umatilla Basin which is significantly um, attributed to mega dairy pollution, feedlot pollution, and irrigated agriculture, which is often the irrigation of the CAPO waste. This is a huge environmental justice problem. Many people in that part of the state cannot safely drink their own water. Years later, the state has failed to take adequate action and EPA has yet to take concrete action. So that is one more reason that we really need the legislature to hit pause before another mega dairy moves into that community. Similarly, we recently petitioned the Environmental Quality Commission to finally begin regulating harmful air pollution and greenhouse gases from the largest dairies, which the state has the authority to regulate. And despite all of the science in favor of common sense regulation and in spite of dairy air quality task force recommendations from over a decade ago, urging the state to start regulating this pollution, the Department of Environmental Quality and the Environmental Quality Commission denied our petition. So we need a timeout so that regulators can get their hands around this issue, put common sense protections in place for public health and the environment. And it doesn't make sense to just dig the hole deeper with more factory farms while we haven't taken care of these basic problems. 
I think that might be a perfect note to end on. I want to thank you all again for your work. Um, I was very excited to learn about the legislation you all are working on, and I wish you all the best of luck. Once again, if folks want to get involved, that's standuptofactoryfarms.org. Uh, and Tara Heinsen, Amy Vinson, and Alice Morrison, thank you all so much for joining us on Coast Range Radio. Thank you for having us. Thank you yeah, for having us. Fun. that's our show one more time that text link that amy mentioned you just text oregon to 23321 that's 23321 and someone from the campaign will respond you can also find more links and resources in the show notes and again please consider supporting this show by sharing an episode with a friend my email is michael at coastrange.org Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks. I'm Naomi Klein, and you are listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. Do you need some quiet mood music? Some soothing sounds? Well, then never listen to Life During Wartime, because they just play really obnoxious DIY punk from local bands and international acts. Sometimes they have bands play live, and it's all with the yelling and the screaming and the I don't like my mom and dad or my teachers and all that kind of stuff. That's uh, Life During Wartime, every other Wednesday from 10 to midnight, here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio is looking for a full-time station manager to oversee administrative fundraising and business functions, nonprofit management experience,